Hello and welcome to Bible 101. Today we're going to be talking about the Holy Ghost and the operations of the Holy Ghost. A while back I preached this to the church that I attend and I figured it would be a blessing to those of you on the podcast that are listening. It's come to my attention that we have a good number of new converts listening to this podcast and I figured this would be a great lesson for you to maybe understand a little bit more about the Holy Ghost and what all it does in our lives. In the book of Acts, chapter number 2, verses 1 through 4, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Four things to notice in this passage. First of all, the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. It's 50 days after Passover. It was a commemoration of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Second thing to notice is God announced his presence with a mighty rushing wind that filled the house. It's probably a shaking. If you look at Acts chapter 4 verse 31, it says after they had prayed, the place was shaken. Something probably similar except in a greater manifestation here in Acts 2. Thirdly, notice that there were cloven tongues like as of fire and it sat upon each of them. Fourthly, notice that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. A sound accompanied the outpouring of God's Spirit. Now, if we compare this to the giving of the law in Exodus chapter 19, verses 17 through 20, and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Notice that. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. So already we have a fire, we have a shaking. Then verse 19, And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice, and the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. So notice the mountain quaked, there was a shaking. Remember I mentioned that Uh, On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came in like a mighty rushing wind, probably a shaking. And then secondly, notice that the Lord descended on the mountain in fire. Remember on the day of Pentecost, it was cloven tongues like as of fire that sat upon each of them. And then thirdly, the trumpet announced God's presence. And so on the day of Pentecost, God's coming in was uh, accompanied by a sound, them speaking with other tongues. So you might say, why the similarities? Well, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 11, verses 19 through 20, it prophesies about the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, and it says this, And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them an heart of flesh, that they will walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So this is a prophecy about the coming of the Holy Ghost, and it's also described as, the inscribing of the law upon our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. So on Mount Sinai, the mountain was filled with smoke because of God's presence descending in fire upon it. On the day of Pentecost, the cloven tongues like as a fire sat upon each of them. And only Moses was allowed to go up on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. But on the day of Pentecost, it sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and the law was written upon their hearts. Now now that I've talked about the similarities of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and what happened on Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, uh, the Bible does say before we move on that he will take out the stony heart. I think that word stony is very interesting because the tablets were tablets of stone upon which the commandments were written, but he said he'd take out the stony heart and put in a heart of flesh and he would put his law in our heart. So now it's no longer written on tablets of stone, it's written upon your heart, a heart of flesh. John chapter 7 verses 37 through 39, we're going to now talk about the operations of the Holy Ghost. And the first operation is, it's a type of water. 
John 7, 37-39, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. John chapter 4 and verses 7 through 14. Jesus is talking to the woman at Samaria. And she came to drink water. And Jesus said, give me a drink. And she said, how can you being a Jew ask a drink of me, which am a Samaritan woman? And Jesus said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. I'm paraphrasing. And uh, you can read this in John again, 4, 7 through 14. And then it says this, uh, he said he would have given thee living water. Verse 11, the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever shall drink of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, if you tie this in with the uh, book of Isaiah, where it talks about with stammering lips and another tongue, will he speak unto his people saying, this is the rest whereby you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not here. And so uh, tie these verses of scripture together. What is water? Think about water for just a minute. Water is refreshing, right? And water is also for cleansing. What do you bathe in? You bathe in water. Well, the Holy Ghost is like water. It bathes you. It keeps you clean. It keeps you pure. Uh, It keeps you holy. It's called the Holy Ghost. It keeps you pure and clean. Uh, it refreshes you, though, as well. Bible talks about in the book of Titus, chapter 3, and verse number 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, saved us by the washing of regeneration and with renewing of the Holy Ghost. We're to be renewed by the Holy Ghost. It's that refreshing. It's that renewing. Uh, it ought to continually spring up. Notice what Jesus said in John 4, verses 14, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. If I can put it this way, it just keeps springing up and springing up and springing up until it takes you all the way to heaven. Springing up into everlasting life. It's not meant to be a one-time experience. It's meant to be something that happens over and over and over and over again. And I like what... um, Uh, The book of Psalms, chapter 23, says toward the end of the chapter, it says, uh, it talks about uh, my cup runneth over. Well, I believe that we ought to be so full of the Holy Ghost that it ought to be running over. We can't just uh, keep it within. We want to share it with other people. It's like that cup that runneth over. And then in John 7, uh, verse number 38, he said, He that believeth on me as the scripture, I said, out of his belly. Notice that out of his belly shall flow rivers, rivers, not river, rivers of living water. It ought to be a continual experience. So it is, first of all, uh, it is cleansing and it is refreshing. So remember that it's a type of water. Secondly, the Holy Ghost washes us. Uh, First of all, I'm sorry, the Holy Ghost washes us. But secondly, it's a type of fire. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, I indeed, this is John speaking, baptize you with water unto repentance, John the Baptist. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you. You ever hear about the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Well, this is where it comes from. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And with fire. With is not in the original. So it says, if we read it that way, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost uh, and fire. So the Holy Ghost is a type of fire. Notice that when it came on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it says, cloven tongues like as a fire sat upon each of them. So it is like a fire. Now, what does this mean? Fire is a purifying agent. First Peter chapter 1, verse number 7 that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 
Revelation 3 and 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eyes that thou mayest see. Uh, this is comes from the web. It's a little something I, I found about refining with fire. It says refining with flame is one of the oldest methods of refining metals. In ancient times, this form of refining involved the craftsman sitting next to a hot fire with molten gold in a crucible, being stirred and skimmed to remove the impurities or dross that rose to the top of the molten metal. So the Holy Ghost is a type of fire. When God accepted a sacrifice in the Old Testament, the sign was fire. Let's read this. The book of Leviticus chapter 9 verses 23 through 24. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat at which when all the people saw they shouted and fell on their face. This was a sign that God had accepted their sacrifice. Now, the tabernacle was laid out in such a way that when they came through the gates, the first thing they saw was the brazen altar. In other words, their need to repent. They brought sacrifices to this altar. Let us never forget that God is a holy God and we must approach him in humility and repentance. But when you repent, the sign that God has accepted your repentance is the Holy Ghost and fire. But fire also speaks of judgment or hell. One of the reasons why the fires of hell are eternal, and if you need proof of this, Jesus talked about weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, continual. Gnashing, continual of teeth. It also talks about uh, he shall purge you with unquenchable fire. Unquenchable means unending fire. So the Bible is quite clear that the fire of hell will be for eternity. But one of the purposes of this is because it can never totally purify you. You've never repented of your sins. Only the blood of Jesus can make you clean. And the fires of hell will never be able to purify you. So it will burn and burn and burn for as long as God lives, which means forever. Only the fire of the Holy Ghost uh, and obviously we understand that the blood is applied throughout the process of repentance, excuse me, baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost evidence by speaking in other tongues. Only the fire of the Holy Ghost can purge your soul from sin. The waters of baptism remit sin and the Holy Ghost continues to purge you. That is why you must be renewed in the Holy Ghost on a regular basis. Now let's return to this Old Testament tabernacle plan. The priest had to make sure that the fire never went out. The book of Leviticus chapter 24 verses 1 through 4. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil, olive beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually. Without the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation shall Aaron order it from the evening until the morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord continually. God wanted the lamps to burn continually. Obviously, what did they burn with? With fire. Now, Ephesus, the church of Ephesus in the New Testament, let the flame go out. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, it says this, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. In order to understand this passage, you must first back up to Revelation 1 and 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. The message was preached to the angel of the church. The word angel, Greek, angelos, means messenger. So let's apply it this way. Revelation 2 and 1. Unto the angel, the messenger of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So the stars are the seven churches. The candlesticks are the seven churches. Jesus walks in the midst of the seven churches. The message was to the angel or the messenger of the church of Ephesus. So 
this is to the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Obviously, God would not have John write to angels. What purpose would there be for angels to be written to? Angels do not preach the gospel. If you want proof of this, uh, you can back up to Acts chapter number 9, where the angel uh, of the Lord or where the Spirit of the Lord spoke to Paul and referred him to Ananias to preach the gospel unto him. The angel that appeared to Cornelius in his house in Acts chapter number 10 did not preach the gospel to him, but told him to call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who lodgeth with one Simon and Tanner. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And if you read the next chapter, it says uh, that Peter told the Jews that the angel told uh, Cornelius that he will tell you how you ought to be saved. So the angels do not preach the gospel in its totality. They leave that in the hands of preachers. How shall they hear without a preacher? Romans chapter number 10. All right. So the angel is the pastor. Paul warned the church not to quench the spirit. First Thessalonians 5.19, he said, quench not the spirit. Quench means to put out. Don't let the flame burn out, in other words. So God was warning this angel of this church in Ephesus that the church has let the flame go out. They've lost their first love. Uh, They've let the flame of the candle go out. What lights the flame? Jesus is the light. I understand it says we're the light of the world, but we're meant to reflect the light, which is Jesus Christ. He is the light. He was, in the Old Testament tabernacle plan, uh, the candlestick which uh, which uh, would light the tabernacle and would bring light, shed light upon the uh, the uh, the uh, excuse me the the table of showbread, which had the bread on it, which was meant to stay fresh. Well, that bread represents obviously Jesus, who is the bread from heaven, but it also represents the Word of God. Can I tell you, you'll never be able to understand the Word of God without the light of Jesus Christ shining upon your light life, and also without the light of the church. The church is also uh, represented by the candlestick. Remember in Revelation, the church is the seven golden candlesticks. What that meant is for Jesus to say, I will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. He's saying, I will no longer walk in your midst. Because remember, he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. To take the candlestick out of its place meant Jesus would no longer walk in their midst. So don't let the flame go out. Let the flame continue to burn. That's my point here. Fire is a purifying agent. It's also a type of judgment. Don't let the flame go out. Let it continue to burn. Again, we come back to the fact that it ought to be a renewing. It ought to be a regular thing. Uh, the flame of the Holy Ghost burning in your life. It purifies you and it also brings judgment on sin. So both of these combined together, it purifies your soul. The Holy Ghost is meant to make you holy. So, so far we've learned that it's a type of water. It washes us and it refreshes us. We've learned it's a type of fire. It purges us. Now we're going to talk about something else. The Holy Ghost is a type of oil. In the Old Testament, oil was used for anointing and it signified the coming of the Spirit upon a person. Let me just give a few examples here. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, talking about David, in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Notice that when he was anointed with oil, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him from that day forward. Let me give another example. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 30. And Moses took of the anointing oil and of the blood which is upon the altar and sprinkled it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon his sons' garments with him and sanctified Aaron. That word sanctified means set apart. And his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Okay, let's return to Leviticus 24 and verse 2. Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee uh, oil, uh, olive, beaten for the light to cause the lamps to burn continually. It was the people's job to bring the oil. It is your job to stay full of the Holy Ghost. In order for the church to be what it needs to be, everyone must bring their oil or their Holy Ghost filled vessel to church. But that's not the end. Leviticus 24 uh, through 4 says this, command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil olive beaten for the light to cause the lamps to burn continually without the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation shall Aaron order it from the evening until the morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He, Aaron, shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord continually. 
So the people brought the oil, but it was the job of the priest to make sure the flame continued to burn. That's why you need a pastor in your life. That's why God spoke to the church at Ephesus and told, uh, directed the message to the angel, the angelos, the messenger of the church of Ephesus and said, hey, make sure that flame starts burning again. They've lost their first love. You need to make sure that the flame does not go out. You need to reignite that flame. That's why you need a man of God in your life uh, because he needs to check on you on a regular basis and make sure that flame continues to burn. And a lot of times, the way the man of God can tell is because you've lost your joy. You've lost your fervency. You've lost your burden for the lost. And so he walks up to you and says, hey, what's going on here? You've lost that flame. It doesn't burn like it used to burn. Flame can also speak of passion. That passion for God is not like it used to be. Hey, let's, let's get that flame sparked up again. Uh, some of you may have heard talking about, uh, you know, if a marriage grows cold. The Bible says, actually, Jesus said in one place, the love of many shall wax cold. That word wax means grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. Sometimes you grow cold. You need a flame to heat that up again. All right. Matthew 25, uh, Jesus told the parable of the ten virgins. And to give you the summation of this passage, talks about ten virgins, five were wise, five were foolish, but notice this in Matthew 25 and verse 1, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. Now let's stop and talk about this. They were all virgins, which means they were pure. They were undefiled. The Bible does say that the church, the bride, needs to be without spot and without wrinkle. So they were all part of the church. They were all virgins. Watch this. Which took their lamps. They all had lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. They were all asleep. I believe in this end time hour that much of the church has gone to sleep. We need to wake up. Verse 6, And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. I'll just stop here long enough to say that it's not the will of God for you to borrow Holy Ghost from somebody else. You can't do that. Hello and welcome to Bible 101. Today we're going to continue the lesson we taught the last time on the operations of the Holy Ghost. I hope this is a blessing to some of you out there. And before we begin, I'm going to actually do a little bit of review. Uh, in the last lesson, we talked about three things, basically, after we talked about the typology in uh, what happened in the day of Pentecost and what happened on Mount Sinai, the similarities there, how uh, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon that mountain, he descended in, in, uh, in, in a flame of fire, and how that on the day of Pentecost, it came upon them like cloven tongues, like as a fire, it sat upon each of them, so it wasn't just for one individual this time, it was for everybody. The law was written upon their hearts. We also talked about how it came in like a mighty rushing wind, which is very similar to what happened on the mountain, because it was a great shaking. And if you compare Acts 2 to Acts 4, it says, when they had prayed, the place was shaken. So I believe when it came in like a mighty rushing wind, it came in with a great shaking. And then we also talked about uh, how it was accompanied with a sound. They spoke with other tongues, but then on Mount Sinai, it was also accompanied with the sound, the presence of the Lord, that is, with the sound of a trumpet. So we mentioned the fact that the reason for this is Pentecost means 50, which means 50 days after Passover. Uh, and 50 days after Passover, it celebrated the commemoration of the law, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Well, it's very significant that on the day of Pentecost is when they received the gift of the Holy Ghost because the law was written upon their hearts. So we talked about that in the last lesson. We also talked about the operations of the Holy Ghost. We talked about the fact that it's a type of water. You can read that John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, and also John 4, 7 through 14. And water, it cleanses you and it refreshes you. So we talked about the 
fact that the Holy Ghost cleanses you and it reflects, uh, it refreshes you and it springs up into everlasting life. It just keeps springing up, springing up, springing up and it takes you all the way to heaven. It's the earnest of your inheritance or the down payment of your inheritance. Also, we talked about the fact that it is a type of fire. It purifies us. You can read in Matthew chapter 3, verse number 11 that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Ghost and with fire. With is not in the original Holy Ghost and fire. And in Acts 2, it came uh, with cloven tongues like as of fire. And then we also read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 7, that gold perisheth, but it's uh, tried in the fire. And, um, and then also in Revelation 3, 18, Jesus counseled them to, to buy of him gold tried in the fire. Uh, refining with fire was one of the oldest methods of refining metals. And in ancient times, this form of refining involved a craftsman sitting next to a hot fire with molten gold in a crucible being stirred and skimmed to remove the impurities or dross that rose to the top of the molten metal. And we talked about the fact when God accepted a sacrifice in the Old Testament, the sign was fire. You can read that in Leviticus chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, also in the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. When he had offered the sacrifice, the Lord answered him by fire. And uh, then when you repent properly, God sends the fire of the Holy Ghost. And that's the sign he's accepted your repentance. Uh, also, we talked about uh, many other things. And I'm, I'm going to attempt to get to new material here in just a second. Uh, it's a type of oil. Uh, and in the Old Testament, oil was a type of the Spirit. Uh, you can read many, many references to that. But I've mentioned specifically the anointing of David as king. When he was anointed, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. When Saul was anointed, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Uh, when uh, uh, Aaron and his sons were anointed. The Spirit of the Lord came upon them uh, to do the work of the Lord. And then we mentioned the fact that it was the job of the people to bring the oil uh, beaten for that, that, uh, that candle to burn continually. But it was the job of the priest to make sure that the flame did not go out. And we tied that in with how you are responsible for staying full of the Holy Ghost. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So, you need a pastor to make sure that that, that uh, flame does not burn out. You're responsible for bringing a Holy Ghost-filled vessel to church. But if it ever starts to dim, don't get mad when the man of God tells you that uh, you're, you're not burning like you used to. I mentioned the fact that uh, if he sees that you're lacking joy or if he sees that you don't have that same fire and intensity and passion. Fire also speaks of passion. And if he sees you don't have that same passion, he's going to come to you and say, Hey, what's happened to you? Why, why have you lost your passion? Why have you lost your zeal? And, and don't get upset when he do, does that. You need to stay accountable to a man of God. We also mentioned the fact in the book of Matthew chapter 25, it talks about the parable of the ten virgins. They were all virgins, meaning they were all pure. Uh, being pure and holy is not enough. Uh, and then it says that they all had uh, lamps. So they had their lamps. Then it also says that uh, they were all waiting for the bridegroom, and they all slumbered and slept, so they had a lot in common. But what differentiated the wise from the foolish is the wise brought extra oil. Oil is a type of the Spirit, and the foolish did not have enough oil to get them through. That's why you must stay full of the Holy Ghost. Again, Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And uh, in context, talking about also be not drunk with wine, uh, that can have a literal application, but also it can have a spiritual application. Don't be drunk with the cares of the world. First Peter 5 and 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Jesus said the days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. So they weren't sober. They weren't thinking about uh, the coming of, of uh, the flood. They weren't concerned about Noah's preaching. And in our day, we need to be thinking about the coming of the Lord constantly. We don't need to be drunk with the cares of life. So next, I'm going to talk about the fact that it is a type of wind or breath. So John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Now we're going to slow down because we're in new material. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. Then he says this, the wind bloweth, this is verse 8 of John 3, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whither it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So uh, the word spirit, pneuma, it can mean breath or a breeze, a current of air. 
So it's a type of breath or wind. If you look in the beginning, how was man created? Genesis 2 and 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So it makes sense that when you're born again, you need to be born by God's breath. John uh, 3, and we already read it, verse number 5. Uh, that uh, you have to be born of the water and of the Spirit, pneuma, breath of God. John chapter 20, verse number uh, 21 and 22, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. They did not receive it on this occasion because in Luke chapter 24, verse number 49, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, Jesus speaking, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse number 8, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says this, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. So, why did Jesus breathe on his disciples and say, receive the Holy Ghost? Well, it was spoken in prophecy because in Acts chapter 2, it came in like a mighty rushing wind. Wind. Amen. I believe that the breath of Jesus followed them into that upper room, and that's what came in like a mighty rushing wind. So you need breath in order to survive. Obviously, you can't live without breath. Well, you need the Spirit in order to be born again. That's why Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And he says, for the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all those that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now, forgive me for a little bit of repetition, but we talked in past uh, Bible 101 lessons about the fact that he said, the promise is to you. So it's for those that were under the sound of his voice that day. It's to your children. It's to the next generation. And it's to generations afar off. It's to people afar off, but also to generations afar off. It has not ended with the days of the apostles. The Holy Ghost is still being poured out, poured out and I'm evidence of that. I've spoken with tongues. I speak with tongues on a regular basis. Uh, the Holy Ghost is still being poured out. Now, once we receive the Holy Ghost, we need a constant renewing. Titus 3 and 5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Renewing. It ought to be a continual experience. So we mentioned the fact that it's like water, but just like water, one drink of water is not going to satisfy you. You're going to need to go back and drink again. I understand Jesus said, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But he did say this, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up, which means it continually happens unto everlasting life. So God fills you with the Holy Ghost, but then uh, the answer to your sustenance is there in your own soul. Let it spring up into everlasting life. Let it just keep springing up till it takes you all the way to heaven. Then it's a type of fire. Don't let the flame go out. Let it continue to burn. Uh, it's a type of oil. Stay, stay uh, full of the Holy Ghost. Have plenty of oil on hand. It's a type of wind or breath. You can't live with just one breath. You need that breath to breathe into you continually. Uh, but then one other thing I do want to mention uh, that the Holy Ghost is a type of. It, the Holy Ghost is a treasure. It's a treasure. It's something to be treasured. And so uh, I, I want to mention a couple of verses of Scripture. And uh, if you'll pardon me just for a moment, I'm, I'm looking for the verse. Here we go. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Okay, so uh, the Bible talks about the fact that the Holy Ghost is a treasure. You need to treasure it. Treasure the treasure. Okay, let's talk about this. Matthew chapter 13, verse number 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Notice that he bought the whole field. He didn't just buy the treasure. He bought the whole field. So in type, you can't just buy the Holy Ghost. So many people today, they want to just get the Holy Ghost. They want to talk in tongues, but they don't want repentance. They don't want baptism in Jesus' name. They don't want a separated and holy lifestyle. They don't want submission to a man of God, but they want that treasure. They want the Holy Ghost, but you can't get the treasure unless you buy the field. You've got to repent of your sins. You've got to be baptized in Jesus' name. You've got to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking other tongues. You need to stay submitted to a man of God. You need to live a holy and separated lifestyle. You've got to buy all the field, all the field. And I like what my pastor said a couple of Sundays ago. He was talking about 
uh, the fact that uh, in in that field there may be thorns, and in that field there may be uh, there there may be uh, things weeds, and there may be different things you don't want to grow in that field. But you got to keep the field clean, and and you've got to regularly go out there and, and cut down the thorns and pull up the weeds. You don't have to plant weeds. You don't have to plant thorns. They come up of their own accord. Uh, so that field may be full of things you don't like, but thank God for the treasure that's in the field. The treasure makes it worth the cost of the field. It's worth selling everything you have. Amen. All right, so uh, having said all of this, I want to end this lesson, uh, and I say end it. We're going to be on this for a while uh, because I believe what I'm about to say is extremely important. And I want to answer the all-important question of can you lose the Holy Ghost? Can you lose the Holy Ghost? Well, there's a doctrine going around today in Pentecost that says you can't lose the Holy Ghost, and it's a seal, and it's going to keep you forever. But um, let me just mention a few verses of Scripture, just kind of get your brain to thinking. First uh, Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 27, Paul says this, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should become a castaway. The word castaway means a dakamas. A dakamas, uh, or excuse me, in the Greek is a dakamas. It means unapproved. It means rejected. It means worthless. It means castaway. It means reprobate. An approved person does not have the Holy Ghost. Somebody that is rejected does not have the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the earnest of our inheritance. Uh, that means it's the down payment of heaven. Somebody that's worthless in the sight of God does not have the Holy Ghost. And obviously a reprobate does not have the Holy Ghost because we can read it in uh, verse uh, uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So a reprobate has been given over to a debased mind. He has been rejected by God. So tie this in with 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 5. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not, your own selves have that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobate. So this scripture clearly teaches that, uh, that uh, uh, a reprobate is somebody that does not have the Holy Ghost. And Paul said, I fear, lest when I preach unto others, that I myself may become reprobate or lose the Holy Ghost. Now, if you need more proof, uh, let's go to the book of Hebrews. Oh, goodness, I have so many scriptures I could use for this. Uh, I don't really see how anybody could teach the doctrine that you can't lose the Holy Ghost. I think there's so many scriptures in our New Testament that speak against this doctrine. Uh, let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 6. Now, in context, while we're turning there, uh, and I'm turning with you, uh, let us remember what the book of Hebrews is, uh, what it's, who it's written by, the theme. Most people believe that, uh, or say most apostolics that I've heard believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Some say it was Apollo. Some say it was Luke. Somebody, some of them say it was somebody else. But, um, uh, you know, a lot of people do believe it's Paul. I believe there's some, uh, actually some manuscript evidence that there's an inscription above the book of Hebrews that says of Paul the apostle. And uh, I know that's highly, highly, highly debated. Uh, but the King James manuscripts, the, 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 uh, the manuscripts that were used for the King James uh, translation, Textus Receptus, actually has an inscription above the book of Hebrews that says of Paul. And so some people believe it's Paul. And the reason why he didn't put his name in there is because uh, the Jews didn't like him very much. And so he wrote it in secret, uh, or he, he kept the authorship secret. Uh, but, you know, I understand there's debate about that. But what he wrote it, he wrote it to... Uh, Christian Jews. These were people that had forsaken Judaism and had turned toward Jesus Christ because they recognized the preaching of Paul that Jesus Christ was the better covenant. Recognized the preaching of Peter and others that Jesus Christ is the better covenant. And he is the better covenant. So in, uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, he's writing to these Jewish Christians that are now under extreme persecution by their own Jewish brethren because they've left Judaism. And they're, they're being told that they blaspheme God and all of these other things. And so some of them are being tempted to turn back to Judaism to get out from under this uh, umbrella of persecution. So in Hebrews chapter 1, he talks about the fact that uh, Jesus is better than the angels. Uh, and he talks about this is a great salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Uh, he talks about the fact that Jesus is a merciful high priest. He's greater than Aaron. He talks about the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses, and he's greater than the old laws. Uh, he talks about the fact that uh, Jesus is a type of Melchizedek, 
uh, in Melchizedek was so great that even Abraham, their forefather, paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so uh, uh, Jesus is a type of Melchizedek. He's a greater high priest. And then uh, he's obtained a more excellent ministry. He's talked about the fact that the law was written upon their hearts. And then if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, he says, consider the example of your forefathers. That's what he, I know we call it the chapter of faith, but really what it's about is that these Jewish Christians needed to consider, needed to consider how much persecution that their forefathers had come under, and yet they did not turn back. Moses uh, uh, sought to uh, suffer persecution with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Uh, uh, Abraham did not turn back, even though he didn't know uh, what city he was going to, but his builder and maker was God. He left his family, he left everything behind, and he had faith in God. Noah, by faith, built an, uh, built an ark. And uh, then he talks about Abel, by faith, offered a, offered a sacrifice to God. And he mentions all of these, and he says all of these uh, did not receive or obtain the promise, uh, but uh, they, they died having not received it. And here you are. You've received that promise. Uh, you've received the power of the Holy Ghost. You've, you've come into the better covenant. Don't forsake it. So I wanted to explain the context before we go actually into chapter 6. Chapter 6 in verse number 1. Therefore, leaving the principles, the principles, that means the elementary uh, part, the principles, the elementary matters of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So what's he saying here? He's saying, look, y'all should be mature by now. I shouldn't have to keep going back and reminding you that Jesus Christ is better than that old covenant. Uh, you ought to be mature. You ought to be better than this by now. I shouldn't have to keep going back and laying again the, the foundation of repentance from dead works. That is foundational doctrine, repentance. A lot of people nowadays have turned from that doctrine. That's a foundational doctrine, he said. And then he says, uh, a faith toward God. A lot of people have turned away from faith. They don't believe God still does miracles. They don't believe God still pours out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Then he says, of the doctrine of baptisms. Notice not just baptism, baptisms. There's a baptism of repentance. There's a baptism of the Holy Ghost. There's a baptism in water in Jesus' name. A lot of people have turned from all three of those fundamental doctrines, but that's still foundational. Then he says, and of laying on of hands. A lot of people have turned away from that. They don't believe that in James chapter 5 what it says, is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with all in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise them up. We have all over the book of Acts where they laid hands on the Samaritans and they received the Holy Ghost. Uh, where they laid hands on people and they received miracles. So it's all over the New Testament. They laid hands on certain disciples and commissioned them and sent them out. So the doctrine of laying on of hands is a foundational doctrine and of resurrection of the dead. A lot of people have turned from this, but it's still a foundational doctrine and of eternal judgment. Notice he said eternal, not temporary, not something where you get cast into hell and you immediately get burned up, but eternal judgment, eternal fire, eternal flame. Uh, weeping, gnashing of teeth, continual. Uh, then he says, uh, he will burn you with unquenchable fire. He'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That means unending fire. It's all over your New Testament. Read it. Uh, a lot of days, I mean, a lot of times nowadays, people have just turned from the Bible, and that's the reason why they don't believe in these foundational doctrines. They've stopped believing that the Bible is inerrant. But the Bible is inerrant because it's the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's inerrant. It's God-breathed. How can God breathe in a mistake? Hello, somebody. I hope somebody just got that one. How can God breathe in a mistake? God doesn't make mistakes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't make mistakes. He's never made mistakes, and he never will. Okay, so then he says this, and this will we do if God permit, verse 3 of chapter 6 of Hebrews. So this will we do if God permit. If God wants us to go ahead and lay them again, we'll lay them again. But then he says this, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Word enlightened uh, means that they received illumination. They had a revelation given unto them by God. 
Uh, remember, Peter received the revelation about who Jesus was by God. He said, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto you. I don't have time to read it, but that's in the book of Matthew chapter 16. Then he says, and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They had received the Holy Ghost. Then he says, and have tasted the good word of God. They've had good apostolic training. They've been taught uh, by a good man of God. A good man of God is preached unto them. They don't have a reprobate preaching unto them. They've got a good man of God preaching unto them. Then it says this, uh, and the powers of the world to come. I, if I can tie it in with this, they receive miracles. They receive healings. They've seen powerful church. Uh, they've seen powerful works of God. And it says, uh, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. It's impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified in themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now in context, he's talking to these Jewish Christians and he said, look, if you turn back from this better covenant and you go back, you're lying to all of those Jews that have been watching you and they've watched how you've turned away from Judaism and said this is a better covenant. You're lying to all of them about who Jesus is. You might as well just put him to death afresh. He says, uh, because you crucified him afresh, you can't come back again into repentance because you've, you've gone back and you've told them a lie about who Jesus is. So don't change your mind now. It's too late to turn around. That's really the theme. If I could put a theme on Hebrews, the theme of Hebrews is it's too late to turn around. Okay, so what does it mean for us? What about non-Jewish Christians? What it means for us is if you turn away from this truth after you've been enlightened, after you've tasted the good things of God, after you've received the Holy Ghost, after you've seen miracles and you've seen the power of God, if you turn back from that, and I'm not just talking about backsliding and falling away for a time, but I'm talking about falling away from truth and crucifying truth afresh in your life. Basically what that means is walking away and saying, I no longer believe that, I don't believe that. Or on the flip side of that, it could be saying, uh, not just saying it with your mouth. Jesus said these people honor with me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So you might express that you still believe all of these fundamental doctrines, but you're living a lifestyle of sin that's impure in the sight of God. And your lifestyle continually preaches to the lost that, uh, that there's nothing to this better covenant. And there's nothing to Jesus Christ. And a lot of times backsliders don't consider the implication of backsliding because if they walk away, uh, it doesn't just affect them. It affects their family. It affects all of those that watched them walk away from sin before, and now they've come right back to sin. And if you live the lifestyle of a hypocrite, you eventually will put God to death in your life. What I mean is you'll put that truth to death in your life, and you will lose the Holy Ghost. And I'll, I'll say more about that here in just a minute. But for proof in that, let's read uh, in the book of 1 John chapter number 3. And uh, let's read, uh, starting at verse number uh, 4. Whosoever committed sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him was no sin, or is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Remember Jesus talked about abiding in him? Uh, abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth, Notice the word sinneth, hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man to see you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteousness. All right, watch this. 1 John 3 and 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil. That word committeth means practices. So it's not just talking about a one-time sin, because all will sin and come short of the glory of God. We're human beings. We're going to fall from time to time. We're going to sin. But he said, he that committeth sin. I'm not talking about excusing sin, by the way. Uh, we ought to do our very best not to sin. But there's going to be times we make a mistake. We get angry. Uh, maybe we fall for a time or something. But he said, he that committeth sin is of the devil. Now, what is he saying? Think about it for a minute. If you continue to commit sin over and over and over and over and over again, you're proving you're not a child of God because a child of God doesn't commit, continue to practice sin. You're a child of the devil. Uh, the Bible talks about uh, whom you yield your, your, your uh, uh, excuse me, I don't have the reference in front of me, but whosoever you yield to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. Meaning that if you yield your vessel to sin continually, you're the servant of sin. And if you yield yourself to righteousness, you're a servant of righteousness. You're a servant of Christ. So if you continue to sin over and over and over, if you commit sin, you're of the devil. Can I say somebody that's of the devil does not have the Holy Ghost? 
He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. That word commit means practice. Does not practice sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. And this the children of God are manifested, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So you can say you're righteous. You can say you believe in uh, all of the holy tenets of righteousness and all the New Testament. You believe in baptism in Jesus' name, in filling of the Holy Ghost, evidence by speaking out of the tongues, holiness, separation, submission to the man of God. But if your lifestyle proves something else, you're not a child of God, you're a child of the devil. I understand that's strong language. I understand that's very strong. And uh, I, I don't want to offend anybody out there today, but this is truth. And if truth offends you, I'm sorry, but it's truth. Uh, okay, so you may say, well, what about the scriptures that talk about the seal of the Spirit? Uh, whereby you are sealed into the day of redemption. Let's find that passage here. I didn't have it in front of me, but I'm going to attempt to find it very, very quickly. Uh, sealed until the day of redemption. The Bible talks about being sealed. And please give me just a moment. Uh, ask for your patience here. Um, Alright, let's go to... It's in the New Testament. Alright, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Somebody might look at that and say, See? See there? No matter what you do, you can't lose the Holy Ghost because you're sealed unto the day of redemption. But I want you to think about something. He said, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God in context. He says, whereby you are sealed into the day of redemption. Okay. I heard a man of God by the name of Brother Wade Bass mention three things you ought not to do to the Spirit. He said, don't grieve the Spirit, don't resist the Spirit, and don't quench the Spirit. To grieve means you've sinned against God and the Spirit is grieved. You'll feel that grieving inside of you. That's conviction. Conviction can turn to condemnation if you do the next step, resisting. Don't resist the Spirit. When it convicts you, pray through, repent, make it right. And if you continue to resist it, you'll ultimately quench it, which means to put the flame out. Okay. Now, uh, let me talk about several other things here. Seal. Well, do you realize that, uh, that circumcision was a seal? Did you know that? Circumcision was a seal. And in the Old Testament, uh, God told Abraham uh, about that Old Testament seal of circumcision. And what he said about it was uh, that uh, uh, it was a sign between him and God forever. Forever. And he said, whosoever is not circumcised will be cut off. He hath broken my covenant. So uh, a lot of Jews started looking at that and saying, well, because we're circumcised, uh, we'll be saved. We'll be saved. Paul refutes this idea. Let's go to the book of Romans, chapter number 2. Turn with me in your Bibles. Romans, chapter number 2. I want you to see this for yourself because I believe it's a very, very important point. Romans, chapter number 2. And let's go to verse number uh, 22. Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. Notice that. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. So I don't care what your flesh looks like. You may be circumcised in the flesh, but if you don't keep the law... Your circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? <clears throat> for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, in the spirit, in the spirit. I understand we talked about Colossians chapter uh, number, uh, let's see, 2 and verse number 11, I believe it is, that talks about baptism as a type of circumcision. But also the spirit is a type of circumcision because it's a seal. Circumcision was a seal in the Old Testament. Uh, the spirit is the seal in the New Testament. And it's uh, not about what's on the outside. I don't care if you're circumcised or not circumcised. That's not what's going to save you. What's going to save you is the circumcision of the heart now. 
And uh, he says, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Okay, so circumcision, we've already seen that uh, it profited the Jews nothing if they did not keep the law. That Holy Ghost, that seal of the Holy Ghost, can be removed if you don't keep uh, the law of God, if you don't keep the instructions of the man of God, if you don't keep uh, the holy commandments of God, if you continue to go out and commit sin and commit sin and commit sin, you're not a servant of God. You're a servant of the devil, and a servant of the devil does not have the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't really see how anybody could argue with some of the points I've made here today, but if you still want to argue, we can look at the book of Revelations and uh, Jesus Christ himself speaking. If that's not good enough for you, let's look at the words of Jesus. In the book of Revelation, uh, chapter number 2. Let's go to Revelation chapter number 2. Now these are messages to the seven churches. He gives the message to the church at Ephesus. Verse number 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thou works in thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne in this patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Candlesticks of the seven churches. He said, I walk in the midst of the candlesticks, meaning he would remove them out of his presence. So, uh, does this mean they were saved? Absolutely not. If he removed that candlestick out of its place, and they ceased to be a church in the eyes of Jesus Christ, can I say, they're not full of the Spirit, Somebody might say, you're stretching it there. Okay, well, what about, uh, let's go to uh, verse number 5 of Revelation 3. He that overcometh, this is the message to the church at Sardis, by the way. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So here in Revelation 3, he says, I will not blot out his name. Meaning, if they did not do what was right, if they did not overcome, they would not have, uh, they would not have their name written in the book of life because it would be blotted out. Can I say, if it was blotted out, they did not have the Holy Ghost. Then in Revelation 3, Let's go to verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Let's skip down now uh, to uh, verse number... Verse 16, So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hard, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That word means to projectile vomit. So if he spewed them out of his mouth, they were not in his presence. That means spewing him out of his mouth, out of his presence. They made him sick. If he was going to spew them out of his mouth, do you think God would throw somebody away from his presence that was sealed with his Holy Spirit? No. So again, somebody might say, well, you're really stretching it there. You're really stretching it. Uh, I'm not stretching anything. Just read the scriptures for yourself. The Bible says that those turned over to a reprobate mind in Romans chapter 1 are people that hold the truth in unrighteousness. They hold the truth, but they hold it in unrighteousness. You can lose the Holy Ghost. You can lose that seal. If the circumcision, uh, you know, you may still have uh, circumcision in the Old Testament, but it's made uncircumcision in the eyes of God. You may think you're still full of the Holy Ghost. You may still even talk in tongues. But somebody that continues to commit sin over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and does not repent of it and does not forsake that sin. Because remember, whosoever covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. You have to forsake that sin. If you don't forsake the sin, then uh, I'm sorry to report to you that if you continue to commit that sin over and over and over again, you grieve the Holy Spirit of God, you're resisting His Spirit, and you ultimately quench it. You put the flame out, and that Spirit of God leaves. He's not going to dwell in an unclean temple. Paul warned the Corinthians. He said, what? Know ye not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost? He said, shall I then take my, uh, uh, the temple of the Holy Ghost and join it unto, the, unto an harlot? He says, don't you know that he that is joined unto an harlot is one flesh with her? Uh, so he's saying, do you really think, think about that in context though, and, and also think about that just in a logical sense. Do you think the Spirit of God is going to be one with a harlot? Absolutely not. God's not going to remain in that vessel. So, you might say, well, that really scares me. If you say I can lose the Holy Ghost, this terrifies me. Well, the Holy Ghost, if 
I could just put it this way, uh, as long as you repent, as long as you stay submitted to a man of God, as long as you obey the Word of God, as long as you pray regularly uh, in the Holy Ghost, pray every day, pray in the Holy Ghost, but you, beloved, building up yourselves in most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, believe that's Jude uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, but, uh, but also, remember what we talked about. The Holy Ghost is like a well of water. Keep your temple clean. Keep that well of water clean. Uh, let it cleanse you. Let it refresh you. Uh, the Holy Ghost is like a fire. Let it purify. Let it refine you. Uh, let that conviction burn within your soul and repent. Make it right with God. Let it purify you. It's like wind or breath. Keep it blowing. Keep the wind coming. The Holy Ghost is like oil. Keep extra oil on hand. As long as you stay full of the Holy Ghost, you don't have to worry about losing the Holy Ghost. Uh, and, uh, you know, somebody might be scared and say, well, is it easy to lose? Well, as long as you pray, as long as you stay submitted to a man of God, as long as you attend a church body, stay faithful to the house of God, uh, the Holy Ghost is, is, is going to continue to work with you and deal with you. And even if you make a mistake, the Holy Ghost will convict you when the man of God gets up to preach. So if you don't hear the voice of conviction in your own life, God will put it on the heart of a man of God to preach to you and get your attention. Uh, but don't, don't let it be to where you continually grieve the Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Ghost. You may be sealed with the Holy Ghost, but don't grieve the Holy Ghost. Don't lose that seal. Uh, continue to pray. Continue to seek God. Keep the Holy Ghost fresh in your life. Well, I hope this lesson has been a blessing to you. Thank you so much for listening.